Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Ben Levno from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test and focus interview. Thanks for that introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing some updates to our movement disorder, autoimmune, and perineoplastic evaluation available in serum and CSF. We're joined today by Dr. Andrew McKeown, who's going to tell us a little bit about the updates and what this movement disorder evaluation is really meant for. But before we get started, Dr. McKeown, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and your role here at Mayo Clinic? Sure. Thank you, Ben. I'm a director of the Neuroimmunology Laboratory at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. I'm a practicing neurologist with uh, subspecialty expertise in autoimmune neurology, and I spend approximately 35% of my time seeing patients, and then I spend the rest of my time working in the neuroimmunology lab, either doing clinical service or new test development or research into new biomarkers for autoimmune diseases. Great. Thanks, Dr. McKeown. And the, the research aspect of that is definitely something that we're going to get into today. Some new discoveries have led to these updates. Before we get into those specifically, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about the disease state? When we talk about autoimmune or perineoplastic movement disorders, what are we talking about? Do you have some examples? Sure. It's a, a spectrum of disorders that includes the ataxias, which are either cerebellum or brainstem based in terms of neurologic localization. Then the what are called the hyperkinetic movement disorders, which includes chorea, myoclonus and dystonia. And then there are some mimics of Parkinsonism, which are pretty rare, but um, sometimes come up in the differential diagnosis. If you're seeing a patient with rapid onset Parkinsonism, where it looks atypical, it doesn't look like Parkinson's disease, but where maybe multiple system atrophy or progressive supernuclear palsy might be in the differential diagnosis, but it all seems a little atypical or a little bit too fast in its progression. I know we're seeing a increase in the prevalence of autoimmune disorders as they relate to infectious etiologies, kind of in general. A lot of that is related to the biomarker discovery that we're going to talk about. Are we seeing an increased prevalence in, in movement disorders that are of a autoimmune etiology as well? Well, I don't know that that's been specifically studied uh, to any great extent. Certainly for related disorders like autoimmune encephalitis, for sure, instance and prevalence has increased. In relation to that epidemiologic question, though, when we looked at the Mayo Clinic experience of autoimmune chorea, so these are patients who present with a disorder that to all intents and purposes looks like Huntington's disease, but occurs very rapidly, very often later in life, rather than having any earlier onset without a family history of chorea. But when we looked at those patients, we actually found that autoimmune chorea was the second most common cause in Olmsted County after Huntington's. So these are somewhat unusual disorders, but these questions do come up in clinical practice and outpatient movement disorders practice, where you have a patient where it just doesn't quite fit the bill for a classic neurodegenerative or classical genetic illness, where you're talking about kind of an onset fairly subacutely, sort of with progression over six to 12 weeks. 
That's really exciting. I feel like we're learning all the time about, you know, how important it is to consider this in the differential. And then we talk about all the time that these are treatable conditions, right? The autoimmune conditions. So just a really exciting field to be part of. If we get into the movement disorder evaluation and some of the specifics, this has been a test that Mayo Clinic has offered since 2018. So can you give our listeners an overview of Let's first of all talk about what's new, what's changed, and what's going to be launched here in January. Sure. We've had some biomarkers that have been discovered either in our own laboratory or elsewhere that we have encountered over time, and we wish to launch these, and they all happen to be uh, pertinent to, to movement disorders. Uh, so the ones that were discovered at Mayo include uh, Septin-5, and septin-7. Septin-5 is universally encountered in patients with ataxia, uh, but with prominent eye movement disorders, which may be a clinical clue in those patients. The septin-7 antibody is more of a, a broader phenotype, actually more commonly encephalopathy, but there have been patients with ataxia, including episodic ataxia. And then there are some patients who have coexisting septin-5 and septin-7 antibodies as well, and they all have ataxia. Then there is another antibody known as neurochondrin, which was uh, discovered elsewhere, but uh, we started to encounter this antibody in our own laboratory and we published a paper on it as well. I really found the same kind of findings as the, the other group had, and this was really kind of a brainstem encephalitis with uh, sometimes with ataxic manifestations. And uh, adapter protein 3B2 is another one that we're uh, launching at this stage as well. This is an interesting one. This was initially reported more than 25 years ago, but just in a single case, was kind of lost in the literature. And we identified an unclassified antibody pattern in our lab, worked it up. We thought we discovered a new antibody, but in fact, when we did a literature review, we found it had already been reported, but we had found it in 10 patients. And so we re reported that one. And the common theme in those patients is gait disorders of one type or another. So they either have cerebellar ataxia or have a myelopathy or a sensory neuronopathy and so an ataxia of one type or another either either cerebellar or sensory as far as cancer associations go there most of them do not have uh, cancer associations except septin 7 but it's not even a very specific cancer in those patients i think it was approximately a quarter of the patients had cancer in their background. The neurochondrin, we did identify one case of a, of a patient uterine carcinoma or adenocarcinoma of the uterus. So, so that's probably one to look for in those female patients. Great. That's a great start, Dr. McKeown. So septin-5, septin-7, neurochondrin, and AP3B2, a couple of those are Mayo Clinic discoveries, septin-5 and septin-7. They're all going to be novel to Mayo Clinic, and they're all being added to the movement disorder evaluation which in reviewing that already has 20 plus antibodies in it, including Kelch 11. Maybe the next question would just be giving an overview of the assay. What other antibodies are, I guess, particularly important in this phenotype? Sure. Well, I think just the reality of it is that for ataxia, there are just a lot of antibody biomarkers now. And I think that that's kind of makes up kind of the substantial number of those it's also important to point out that as movement disorders go, ataxia is by far the most common among those. In terms of frequency of, of antibodies, get the GAD65 antibody, I think, would be the most prevalent marker. It's certainly one that we come across in the lab uh, very commonly. 
And when I talk about GAD65, I should clarify a little bit about what I mean in a neurological context, because that antibody is very commonly detected in the general population. About 8% of healthy people have it, but at low titers, and then there are kind of medium range titers where people might have type 1 diabetes or other systemic autoimmune diseases. And then there's people with neurological autoimmunity who have very high GAD65 antibody values. In our lab, that would be greater than 20, 20 nanomoles per liter or report in the literature for ELISA assays, greater than 10,000 international units per ml. So that's one we, we, we find very commonly. So GAD65 antibody, typically not associated with cancer. Often the patients have a background history of autoimmune disease like thyroid disease, diabetes, B12 deficiency, Addison's disease. Then you have, you know, just a whole host of different antibodies. We think about ataxia, the common ones would be PCA1 or anti-EO, ANA1 or anti-Q, MGLUR1 antibody. I think those three are kind of worth mentioning just kind of as a kind of a theme because uh, uh, patients to all intents and purposes could present with the same neurological phenotype of ataxia, but may have either a different cancer. So PCA1, we would think of ovarian uh, or breast adenocarcinoma. For serrano one we would think of, of small cell or other neuroendocrine tumors. And for MGLUR1, we would think of uh, lymphoma, or in some cases, no cancer in those patients. And also there's differentiation in terms of treatment response. The PCA1 patients being often just disappointing immune therapy responses, progression despite immune therapy, whereas the MGLUR1 patients often stabilization or improvement. So these antibodies are important to establish an autoimmune diagnosis, but also to give you some knowledge as to what's the likely cancer to be underlying here, if any, and then what to potentially expect from treatment. I think that's really great, Dr. McKeown. I was going to capture that as well. You know, the importance of each antibody, uh, the way we talk about it is that, you know, it tells a story, uh, mm -hmm. prognosis, diagnosis, and treatment. Mm -hmm. um, the, another antibody that's unique to Mayo Clinic and included in our movement disorder evaluation is Kelch 11. But I think a lot of our audience might not be aware of that antibody. Can you speak to how that manifests in this phenotype? Sure. Yeah. So the, the Kelch 11 antibody is mostly associated with brain stem encephalitis or cerebellar ataxia, but there can be some findings that would give you a clue clinically, such as jaw dystonia or hearing loss and uh, typically occurring in male patients with an underlying seminoma. Great. I think the other complementary question to why are all these antibodies included? Are there any uh, antibodies in this autoimmune neurology space that would not need to be evaluated for a patient that presents with some sort of movement disorder? Yes, antibodies like aquaporin-4, MOG antibodies, these would be ones that we would typically think of other disorders like optic neuritis, longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, and sometimes in children, encephalitis. Yeah, this is part of our broader approach of phenotype-specific evaluation. So there's not just one catch-all where we're going to throw all of these antibodies into one evaluation, which helps to improve specificity, sensitivity. The next question I have, Dr. McKeown, is uh, which patients should have this testing and when should it be performed in the differential? You, you've talked, I guess, a little bit about patient presentation already, but is there anything that you feel like uh, you could add, maybe related to patient presentation, feet of onset, anything like that? The key thing really is, is the, the trajectory of the, the patient presentation. And I think family history is also important as well. 
So these, these are patients who have a trajectory of worsening over weeks to a few months and do not have a family history of these problems. They may have family histories of autoimmune disease, you know, which would be type 1 diabetes, thyroid disease, B12 deficiency, uh, and so on. But if the, if the history is kind of one that's sort of insidious where the patient is getting slightly worse year on year and with or without a family history, I think that the autoimmunity would, would not be pertinent to those patients. One exception to that might be IGLAN-5 autoimmune disease. There have been some reports of progressive illness in those patients, uh, but they have a kind of a sort of a phenotype that's kind of not pure ataxia either or pure chorea. They have other problems, particularly sleep disorders. They have problems with central or obstructive sleep apnea um, and dream enactment behavior and other problems. Just makes me think about how complex of a field this is to have all of these different antibodies that all associated with different types of presentations and prognosis, diagnosis, and treatment. I think it's also relevant now to mention that Mayo Clinic has a couple other probably important evaluations to be aware of for movement disorder, and that's our stiff person PERM evaluation, as well as the standalone glycine receptor test that we have. Can you speak to when these tests should be used and, and it kind of in which order? Maybe it depends on the patient presentation, I'm sure. Yeah, I think it's really, really important to, to sort of drill down on the, on the phenotype. And so we've designed phenotypic, phenotype-specific evaluations with that in mind that the following sort of basic clinical aims will be kind of undertaken. One is establish what's the trajectory of this patient's illness. Number two, what's the phenotype? So if a person's presenting with slowly progressive weakness and spasticity over years to decades and uh, has some spasm in their legs, we're not thinking stiff person syndrome there. We're thinking of a hereditary myelopathy. If we're dealing with a patient that presents subacutely with new onset stiffness and spasms in the limbs and in the trunk, and the, this is precipitating falls, particularly with stimuli such as loud sounds, which would indicate sort of central nervous system hyperexcitability, then we'd be thinking more along the stiff person line. And particularly if the patient has a history of other autoimmune diseases, the most common for a stiff person is GAD autoimmunity. And those patients in about half would have an already existing autoimmune disease like thyroid disease, diabetes. When the stiff person phenotype, start with that stiff person or PERM evaluation. If it's less typical, more ataxia, maybe broader uh, patient presentation, the movement disorder evaluation is the right first choice. Am I right so far, Dr. McKeown? Yeah, that's appropriate. I mean, for the movement disorders evaluation itself, you know, we're really talking about non-stiff person phenotype. And sometimes these things can overlap. So, you know, movement disorders can encompass ataxia, it can encompass brainstem disorders where there's a huge amount of overlap. And that would account for the vast majority of those patients. And then there's a smaller minority of patients who present with chorea, even rarer than that, very rare would be dystonias and that would have an autoimmune cause um, or myoclonic disorders. The one standout disorder where myoclonus is almost inevitably autoimmune would be opsoclonus myoclonus syndrome, where you don't just have myoclonus of the limbs or the trunk, but you also have myoclonus of the extraocular eye movements or what we call oxyclonus. So that is uniquely an autoimmune disorder. And some of those patients will have autoantibodies detectable uh, in the movement disorders evaluation. So that would include 
things like ANA2, ANA1, depending on the age group. And that can be important because it'll point you towards a specific cancer type. That's how we're kind of parsing that out. And so really the mood disorders evaluation accounts for really a lot of those cerebellar, brainstem, basal ganglial disorders, which often overlap with one another. And then, but then the stiff person phenotype really is, it's kind of, it's, it's a separate thing, you know, and it's kind of, it's a really kind of quite a sequestered sort of phenotype that you're, that you're looking for. It's quite different. And so we feel comfortable that that is a more restricted evaluation and kind of really down to those four antibodies that are, are pertinent to that, that particular disease state. Exactly. That's a great summary, Dr. McKeown. I think the only other thing I want to highlight is that the only antibody that's not included in the movement disorder evaluation that is in the stiff person is glycine receptor. So if, if a physician orders the movement disorder evaluation, things come back negative, they're still thinking, well, maybe it could be a stiff person phenotype. They could order the glycine receptor standalone after that to fully evaluate the spectrum of antibodies. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, I mean, glycine receptor antibody has been reported with other disease states other than other than stiff person. But in our experience, you know, glycine receptor antibody in the serum, it can be a little challenging to figure out kind of with the low positives, whether these are real or not. And historically, we had some problems with that. Uh, over time, we have actually uh, optimized our assay by changing the screening dilution. And we're pretty confident now that the ones that we're capturing are representative of uh, kind of a stiff person or progressive encephalomyelitis or rigidity and myoclonus or perm phenotype. The glycine receptor antibody is important really for the, principally for the perm phenotype. GAD65 antibody principally for the stiff person phenotype. Amphiphysin antibody more for a kind of a stiff person phenotype that involves principally the extremities rather than the trunk, often associated with pain and neurogenic sort of changes and that can overlap a little bit with myelopathy and then and then a dppx antibody can have a, a perm phenotype but not uh, not really a stiff person classical stiff person phenotype in one of our studies we tested our kind of classical stiff person cohort and uh, what we found was gad65 antibody was most common then glycine receptor antibody and then uh, we didn't find dppx antibody among those patients Great. And we have another test in focus that our audience could listen to. It goes into more detail than stiff person perm evaluation. Dr. McKeown, let's finish up with just a couple of questions. I mean, most primarily, how does this evaluation impact patient care? You talked a little bit about the cancer association being low with the new antibodies, but some of the other antibodies included will definitely guide a search for cancer. How about immunotherapy responsiveness or, or any other factors that this evaluation will help physicians to improve their patient care. Right. So I think that this evaluation is important to consider in those patients with subacute onset or rapid progression of ataxia, brainstem, encephalitis type presentation, chorea, uh, myoclonic disorders, where there isn't kind of a clear alternative explanation, uh, no family history of those kinds of problems and maybe some of the atypical rapidly progressive Parkinsonian phenotypes. What it'll help you do is identify an autoimmune diagnosis for your patients. Secondly, it will allow you to determine is this likely a paraneoplastic versus non-paraneoplastic autoimmune disorder? What type of cancer would you look for in your patient? 
And then uh, it also gives you the opportunity then to reference the literature regarding what treatments have been tried in, in these patients in terms of immune therapies. And then what should you expect in terms of outcomes? How will you counsel your patient regarding the chances of improvement with immune therapy? And it sounds like in particular, these new antibodies, septin-7, septin-5, neurochondrin, AP3B2, have been shown to be quite immunotherapy responsive. Is that accurate, sir? Yeah, some of the, some of the patients have been immunotherapy responsive. Great. All right. And then just the last question, Dr. McKeown, what are you most excited about? Is there a key takeaway or something that you're most excited about with the launch of these new antibodies in the movement disorder evaluation? Sure. I think it, this is exciting because it's, again, really broadening the repertoire of biomarkers available for uh, these patients with autoimmune movement disorders. While we've been able to identify a number of these behind the scenes for some time, based on our tissue immunohistochemical assay or immunofluorescence assay, we can see these staining patterns. Uh, we now um, have been able to get that to a stage where we've validated tests for that that are now available for patient use, and uh, we can get results to the providers more quickly. Great. Thanks a lot, Dr. McKeown, again, for joining us today, and we appreciate the time. Have a good day, everyone. Thank you, Ben. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>